0: to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. My name is Chris Triano, joined always by Stephen Ganistrisi. Hello, hello. This is episode number 16, and we are interviewing the owner and founder of Wessex Tuba's Jonathan Hodgetts. Uh, this is our first international interview. This interview is taking place, obviously, through Zoom, like all of our previous ones have. Uh, but Jonathan is joining us from the United Kingdom. So... Just in case you hear a little bit of extra pops and audio interference, just uh, please excuse that for this interview. But that doesn't take away that this interview was awesome. It was really cool having the opportunity for the first time on the Early American Brass Band Podcast to talk to an instrument maker and really get to talk about their experience and wishes and dreams for uh, creating these over-the-shoulder instruments. Yeah, I really know nothing about the process that um, you
1: have to go through to design, prototype, and then produce an instrument. So it was great to pick his brain about that. And hear what he has to say about the reason they are making some of these instruments. Because as we mentioned in the episode, um, they've kind of ventured into the, if you want to call it oddity instruments, or maybe the instruments of old that have fallen a little bit out of favor, like the Ophaclide uh, chimbasa, which we know is a general term, but um, they still make the Chimbasos, you know, where the where the bell faces forward and the valves are in front of you, um, off of Clydes, things like that. Um, so it was great to talk to him about kind of why they uh, decided to go into that. And I think you'll enjoy those
0: insights as well. I guess we can also kind of say that this episode features kind of a Wessex announcement. I don't know if they've announced uh, their plans for future rollouts online anywhere else, but, uh, he at least gave us a little bit of uh, insight as to what their next project is, which kind of relates directly to early American brass bands. So kind of cool for, for that. Hopefully you stick around and, and hear what that announcement is somewhere in the interview. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, we can't
1: thank Jonathan enough. He was very generous with his time, uh, and his insight, um, if you like what you're hearing on the podcast, come hang out with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, we are working hard behind the scenes to push out some more exclusive YouTube content. So definitely subscribe to us over there so
0: you make sure you don't miss anything. And here is our interview with Wessex owner and founder, Jonathan Hodgetts.
1: Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time. I've I've never really spoken with someone who you know makes and designs instruments so i'm, I'm really looking forward to this
2: well, yeah, well nice like, nice to see you and thanks for your interest
0: yeah of course do you think um maybe we could start off by maybe giving us a little bit of your musical background and kind of tell us uh, a little bit of the journey leading up to what is now wessex
2: right well it's, it's quite a long journey really <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it really started when i was 12 years old i was at school and and I just wanted to join the school band. I realised there were certain advantages of it, and um, I just went along and, and joined the band. So I wasn't quite sure what I was going to play initially, and the um, uh, brass teacher thought I, I looked like a tuba player So I was quite a big, I was quite a big kid. So I asking for the tuba. There you go. And that's, that's how it all started. So I, w- I went through all through school playing and. Um, Enjoyed it and and, and got on quite well. I think I got on quite well with the tuba there. (laughs) Then when I I, I left school, I um, stopped playing for a couple of years with other interests and such like as teenagers have. (laughs) And um, and then the um, local brass band said, could you come and help us along for a concert? And um, so I went along and played with them. And I was playing with that band then for the next 23 years. Very
0: cool. Which band is that?
2: That's uh, a band called Test Valley Brass, which is my local brass band.
0: Okay, and and where is that uh, based out of?
2: That's in Andover, Hampshire, in England. Excellent. Yeah,
0: and I, I'm kind of curious at at what age do they typically start students on uh, brass instruments over there?
2: It's 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 probably twelve is pretty typical. I would think my mm-hmm. my age is is a pretty typical age to be started.
0: I started in third grade. I don't even know how old that is.
1: Yeah, where I grew up, we were able to um, start a string instrument in third grade. And then uh, fourth grade was when you were able to start a band instrument. So that's about like, I don't know, nine, eight, nine for third grade. And you know, 10, 11, 12. Quite
2: quite young. I I, I started off on on the E-flat tuba. Mm -hmm. And then within a year, I went on to the B-flat tuba. So I was playing B-flats all those years.
0: Very cool. And then we, we've been mentioning throughout the, the podcast different similarities between uh, like the early American brass band that we, we're kind of focusing on, but then also how it's similar yet different also from the British style brass band. So can you maybe uh, talk briefly for our listeners that may not be as familiar, kind of give a, a brief overview of the British style brass band?
2: Well, the British style brass band started also in the, in the middle of the 19th century. And it was um very much started out by businesses um mill owners and such like to give something constructive for their workers to do in their free time
3: mm-hmm. and
2: mm. um, the instruments were largely provided by the by the factory that they worked for, oh. so they, they were works their work bands because the people themselves didn't have enough money to buy instruments themselves mm. and they started contesting to improve their standard and 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 brass band contests have become a big thing in the UK to try and improve the standards of the band. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing um, special to brass bands is that they do have like a fixed in- instrumentation and that's that developed from about 1860 of um, about eight cornets I think and a flugel horn and three tenor horns, what you call outer horns. That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know why the different name. Different yeah, name there. <laughs> um, two, two baritones, two euphoniums, three trombones, two E flat tubers and two B flat tubers, mm-hmm. and percussion, which initially I think was just like a, a drum and a cymbal, but mm-hmm. over the years it's got like more and more, more elaborate stuff.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and therefore, therefore I, I think the American brass bands were similar to that in the early days that's yeah. so obviously a, a bit of a tangent. <laughs> what okay. is
1: the same between the two is like the the key distribution, you know, as you go down score order, B flat and E flat alternate, you know, from the top all the way down. Um, and then obviously with the British brass band, everything I believe except for the timpani and the bass trombone parts are in tenor
2: clef or treble clef. In treble clef, yes. The reason they had the treble clef was that the, the, the people... Could move, be moved from one instrument to another very easily without having to learn or um, uh, to play a new instrument or new fingerings and such like. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and and that that um, alternating key structure is is present in the early American brass bands as well. So that's kind of something that's the same
0: between the two. Yeah. Yes. Very interesting. So so you were involved with your your local brass band. You said for twenty three
2: years. Twenty three twenty three years. And then I had a girlfriend who was into classical music and mm. I got into sort of classical music and um, I wanted to play with the orchestra then. So I, I then went sort of back and had further tuition, went for more lessons, improved my playing to a higher standard and then looked for a local orchestra to play with. It's just cool. quite good, you know, in my 40s. So I just started orchestral playing in my 40s. Yeah.
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah, so that was like, a, you said a local orchestra also, so was it in the the same town as your brass band? or
2: No, it was, it was it was about 20 miles away.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Very cool.
2: And I also, at the same time, started playing with wind bands as well, because uh, in the orchestra, the tuba plays from, from bass clef music, mm-hmm. and um, I wanted to really get my bass clef reading up to speed, so I joined the local wind band, because you, you get a lot more playing, obviously, in a wind band than you do in an orchestra. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's that's a, that's
2: a good way, to get, good way to get up to speed. I've kept up with um, wind band and orchestral playing ever since, and I don't play with any brass bands regularly today, but occasionally you get called into depth with one. Mm-hmm, very cool. So, in fact, I was due to do a brass band contest um, just when this this COVID situation happened, mm-hmm. and the, and the contest was cancelled, so yeah. it never it never happened. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Stephen was in a similar position too, I think, right? With a Yep.
1: Yeah, we, uh, there's a a newly formed British-style brass band uh down here in Virginia where Chris and I both are. Um and we were supposed to go to the NABA contest. Um should have happened, I, I think at the end of April. Uh and that got tech got canceled obviously because of the uh pandemic, but British brass bands that was something I really never had any experience with until I started doing my master's degree at Penn State, um, and there were a few people there who wanted to try and start one. So we kind of got one up and running, but it never really went anywhere. Uh, we we actually, I don't think we ever put on a concert. We had a bunch of rehearsals and we're working on music, but we never were able to put on a concert. Um, so then fast forward, two to three-ish years Um, and I kind of got linked up with this uh, brass band in Northern Virginia and it's been great I mentioned it in the last episode that we recorded it's a blast I mean those euphonium parts are a lot harder in the British brass band than they are you know for the majority of American written wind band literature so you know it's it's nice to kind of stretch your legs out a little bit and and let loose
2: (laughs) I think I think the brass band band can be quite demanding because you get parts that would have been given to, I don't know, would have been given to a clarinet, was given to a cornet and, and, um, and, and so on. And it can be a lot more demanding parts. So they are,
0: they are, with. So I'm curious that you said you were playing with a wind band over there. Also, what, what's that uh, community like, or what's the, the history like of, of wind bands over there? Because I had always kind of thought that the, the brass band was the, the dominating like classical music force.
2: The uh, wind bands over here are very much based on on military bands, so oh. it's um, uh, like a military band instrumentation,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and so I, I, I guess it, it's it's run like a military band, but not for the military, as it were.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah for sure. So, well, I'll, I actually play with a couple of one. One is more of a military band; it's actually a police band, hmm. um, okay. and so that's that's very much like a military setup. And I also play with another one which is more like an American wind band because we play a lot more of the sort of, same sort of music as you do in the wind bands in the States. Gotcha, gotcha. Although our, our wind bands here tend to be typically a lot smaller than you seem to have over there. When I've actually played in the States with a band, it's, it seems to be like multiple tubers, I've, <laughs> many as seven tubers I, when I've played with a band. Yeah. Where here, they're lucky one or two. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah yeah that's hilarious was it while you were then playing with uh the local orchestra and everything that you then became interested in starting your own business or was that something that was kind of like always in the back of your mind or how, how did that start
2: it wasn't really in the back of my mind i worked for uh, um my my day job at the time I, I was working for the performing rights society which is like you having the state ascap Oh, yeah. said the, composer, published the music. Mm-hmm. So that was where, where I was working. And um, then I, I actually met and married a, a Chinese wife when I was about 50 years old. Mm. And, um, and I started going to China, you know, when she was visiting her, her relatives and such like.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: mm-hmm. she spoke, flu- speaks obviously speaks fluent Chinese. It's her first language. And I had this idea. Oh, they, they can make brass instruments in China. I wonder if I could sort out getting brass instruments made. So we started started going around. Did, she did some research and I did some research. And we started visiting all the various factories around China to uh, see about getting some brass instrument production underway. Very and cool. that's how it started.
0: Awesome. I think I saw on your website that that was in 2010, I think, is when you started yes, the company.
2: Yes, 2010, yes.
0: Very cool. Nice. And then something that also I found interesting while uh, browsing the website, you know, obviously, you know, the the whole brass community is very familiar with Wessex, but then on your website, it, it kind of talked about the uh, the history, of the progression of the company a little bit, and it said that you guys first began with stencil horns and then moved on to your own individual designs. Can you kind of talk about what that entails and what that what that actually means for our listeners? <laughs>
2: Well, when when it first started, obviously I was completely unknown to any of the factories producers there. They were they were they were very dubious about I expect they get lots of people from the West come in and saying we make some make instruments for me or whatever and it doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So initially they would not make anything special for me. All they would do was just sell me out their standard catalogs and stencil them. So that's mm-hmm. how I started up. And it started off with just um, like four tubers arriving at a time on a pallet sort of thing. It's, it's yeah. a very small operation mm-hmm. and me working from my back room in my spare time. So, yeah. And at the same time, I was still doing my my day job. So it's almost started out like a hobby.
0: Are you full-time with Wessex now? Is that the full-time company?
2: Long, long, long since. With, after a year, it grown to enough. That I was making more income from Wessex than I was from my official day job, and I dropped the dropped the day job as it were, mm, and concentrated to um, do Wessex full time. And it was shortly after that we started having an operation in the states as well. That's one of the things that was coming to light was a large number of the cells were happening in the in the USA. Um, when I when I started, I didn't know where the sales would would be, but they, they've bit by bit become all, all over the world. Yeah, I think it, I think it's just the the, the marketing and publicity I've done, and the fact that I'm actually sort of in contact with the musicians around the world.
0: Hmm. Anything that's why the the market kind of grew in the United States was just because of your connections with uh, in the in the brass world.
2: It may may it may well have been, and, and all the contacts I I'd, I'd made there. Um, particularly through, through tube the, the sort of from the tube form,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, I just know a lot, lots of people there. Mm-hmm. So after I would say about a year, 18 months, the factories in China, well, one particular factory, the Jinbao factory started having enough respect for me that they would start initially to start doing modifications on theirs on their normal stencil horns. So I go and say, well, I think it'd be better if that was different, and that was different, that was different, and give them all these changes. And they'd start modifying them and customizing them for me. And then mm-hmm. that went on to making our own instruments. And the unusual one for the for the first um, special instrument of the Wessex was, uh, was, a, was a tornister tuber, which, which is a backpack tuba, which, which mm-hmm. the uh, Austro-Hungarian army used to use. Oh,
0: very cool. Is, uh, that, is that still on the website? Is that one still offered? Uh,
2: that's still on there. It's, it's on the website now. as the Mighty and midget. There you go. <laughs> if you go and look on the website. And um, and I, I, I get hold of... it's was actually, when I got, was a one-off custom instrument I'd got hold of. And that went to the, to the factory to be a sample to produce the new work, produce the, you know, the, start the production with and that really took off one of the things you never know when you bring out a new, a new instrument is how well they're going to sell mm-hmm. but this one sold really well hmm. and that then gave the factory confidence to actually start working with us more closely
0: very cool are you the one that's making all these uh specific design modifications or do you have a team or does somebody else kind of do that for you or or how are these yeah these customizations, but then also completely new projects kind of, uh, forming.
2: Well, it started off with me just, me just working with the, with the, um, production manager in the factory to, to sort things out. But then I, I had a, um, a local man in the UK that was making his own instruments called Jim Langley. He helped me for a while and a couple of instruments were, were made with his help. And then I, um, had a, a nice chance meeting with Chuck Nichols, who's uh, in the U.S. Army Band Europe at the time. Mm. Uh, when I was at Frankfurt Music Fair. He sent me a message and said, "I, I produced all these all these tubas, and I wondered if you might consider them to add to your range." <laughs> so I went over there and with a, with a couple of friends and professional players, to tried them out, and we were impressed how they played. and um, he decided to, to, to move forwards cool. and Chuck was, um, uh, soon afterwards, invalided out the, out the U S military due to back injuries. Mm-hmm. And, um, he, he joined working for me full time as my, my chief designer. Very cool. I think he's one of the, you know, the, the best brass designers in the world.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. It It's really fun going through your website and seeing all the, uh, the wide variety of different types of instruments that you guys have for sale—it's—it's it's really cool. I saw that there's like trumpets and cornets and, and alto horns on there too.
2: Yeah, when ch- tuba sort of like obviously my sort of my, my low brass is my, my first love, and that's what we started off with. Mm-hmm. But then I started getting people saying, "Well, couldn't you couldn't you couldn't you make this cornet or or, or whatever French mm-hmm. horn?" And so. It was just like, like special requests from people. We started making them and then found that there was a demand and people wanted to buy them and, and therefore they got added to the range. Um, there are some custom higher brass that we've had made as well, but we haven't done as much work on developments as we have the low brass.
0: Mm -hmm. For sure. So, so all of these, uh, what, what I refer to in our document as oddities, you know, kind of like the, the more out there instruments, those have ma- those have mainly come from uh, customer requests that you then went into research and development for and being able to create them?
2: They have been customer requests, and I've uh, also they're, they're instruments that I saw that no one else was making, and I thought they they should be available to players today to to play if they want to. Mm-hmm. And one of the good things in in, in China is that. We're using what's the facilities of the the biggest brass factory in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Wessex has has grown and grown as a customer. And now we are um, Jim Bell's number one brass customer in the world. So basically the factory in China would do anything I ask now. (laughs) And we, we've now got our own separate workshop away from the general production, so we can use our use our own workshop. We even even got our own Western toilets there because we got <laughs> fed up with the Chinese toilets. <laughs> <laughs> so, what
0: what what's that difference?
2: <laughs> well, Chinese toilets, yes, like a hole in the hole in the floor, and you got the crouch over it.
0: Oh wow, there you
2: go. <laughs> uh, and we're we're there every six for a week every six weeks, so mm. we 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 didn't want that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> So they had enough respect that they actually actually put in a, a Western toilet, especially for us.
0: There you go. That's how you know you've made it when, when, you're, when your partners will install special toilets for you. <laughs>
2: yes, exactly. So uh, anyway, one of, the, one of the advantages of using such a big factory is that they actually even do their own tooling as well. They've got a separate department within the factory, which makes up all the banjels for, for production. So where most most factories, it'll be a, an external cost buy-in to, to get, say, a, a bell mandrel made. In this case, it's just a matter of sending the plans from one department to another, and then it's made. Very cool. So there's, there's much more willingness to make unusual instruments, and it's much more affordable to make rare instruments and it is in most other factories
0: yeah i i thought it was really interesting how you said that you saw that these instruments weren't readily available to a lot of people and you thought that it was important for people to have access to these instruments um i know uh cost and accessibility and all these things are are considerations of yours also but can you kind of maybe elaborate a little bit more on um why you think it's important for these are the instruments to still be able to be played and and still be out there?
2: Well, they they often they often give different different tones different sounds from the modern instruments, and I think it's important that those tonal sounds in, in the musical texture are not are not left lost to the world. That people can still hear what a French music with a French C-Tuber in it, or or um, an early American band piece with a two-bell euphonium and, and here that's in, in the, in, that's in the texture and of course when it comes to the the over-the-shoulder saxophone it's a completely different sound to a modern tuba yeah. so I think it's quite important that these instruments are made
3: mm-hmm,
2: definitely. and th- those sounds are available because otherwise everything all music becomes sounding the same from around the world and you, you lose all that tonal variety.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, Steven, you, you hadn't posed a a good question on our, on our document in terms of timeline.
1: Well, going back to what you said about uh, the tooling in in the factory, the tooling department being, you know, under the same roof that actually um, my dad is a tool and die maker in the United States. He has been for, you know, forever really. I think that's what he went to school for. Um, So he, he would be very familiar with, you know, making the mandrels and making all the tooling that goes into then producing the final product. But I was wondering, I have absolutely no idea what it takes to design an instrument. So I was wondering if maybe you could walk through like the timeline um, from designing an instrument to, you know, prototyping and then having a product that you can uh, then roll out for people to purchase.
2: Right. Um, Well, generally we, we start off by... Have making a a prototype. Okay. Uh, you usually, you usually start off with with parts available, whatever, whatever you can get your hands on that's available,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and then modify it as necessary. It's always easier to modify what's already there than to start with a just a sheet of metal sort of thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And and you might go, things might work out. That it's right first time it might work out that you've got to go through many different prototypes like one that's worked really well that I'm, I'm particularly proud of is a, is a wyvern tuber which is a, a four quarter c tuber and that I designed that and it's actually worked out right first time that's hmm. but that that's not that is not a, um, a conclusion mm-hmm. and some some cases they go through multiple um we've done one Leviathan that went through about four different prototypes. And we've done a new F tube and I don't know how many that's gone through, about eight, about yeah. eight eight different models. And the design changed quite a lot to try and try and get it right. So it's it's quite a quite a process. But you really got to got to produce something because you've got to get the ergonomics right and the playing right, the tone totally right the intonation right is there Um,
0: is there a priority in those things like when you're going through prototypes are you like at first trying to figure out the ergonomics and how it feels to hold or is tone quality the first thing or is it all everything's
2: (laughs) the the number one the the um the the intonation you've got to have an instrument that plays in tune to start with so that's Mm -hmm. that's probably the first thing that it's got to it's got to play in tune reasonably in tune throughout the range. So intonation is probably the the first consideration. Mm-hmm. Then you'll talk about tone and response. And then the ergonomics is, is the last thing, because obviously you can sometimes make changes then to the root and the tube in order to get the ergonomics rise at the, the later stages. That's, that's probably about the last thing down the line. Gotcha, gotcha. Makes sense. But- anyway, when we got... We, when we have got some a prototype which we think plays well then it can be go to the drawing shop and it can be all the diagrams the blueprints are made out for it the initial prototyping can take anything from 3 months to couple of, 2 or 3 years see so the gotcha. get that initial prototype ready then it goes to the drawing shop that will probably take another 6 months to get it all all measured up and the, the blueprint stuff mm. So You might have to wait, wait, wait in queue for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's, so it's sounding like that on average, I guess, from initial conception to when it's actually ready to go, it could be anywhere from four to five years, maybe? Does that sound about right?
2: Quite, 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 quite likely, yes.
0: Yeah, wow. Well.
2: So, so then once the blueprints are made, it can then go to, to have all the tooling made, made for it. Like most manufacturers, we use existing parts as much as we can, but not if it's going to spoil the spoil the overall instruments, and it's quite important to get the design right because the tooling is is, is the really the expensive part. Yeah, true. You could you even even in China, a big tube of bell mandrel could cost twenty thousand mm.
3: so,
2: dollars. So you don't want to you don't want to don't want to to um, uh, make a mess of that.
0: Yeah, right. yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, in terms of you were saying how a lot of these instruments come by customer requests and some of them are just, uh, I'm assuming like uh, passion projects, right? To a certain extent, but are, has there ever been an instrument that you have been asked to, to produce or one that you've wanted to produce that you thought uh, that there was no need or would be too expensive to try to manufacture?
2: Yeah, um, yes. When I, when I... Been dropped by the wayside, which I'd love to have produced, was the contrabass ophicleide, of mm. which would have been about seven foot, seven foot tall, and and um, uh, you know pitched an octave lower.
0: Yeah. So what what considerations did you have to make in order to unfortunately axe that project?
2: It was just not. It was just going to cost too much to make it, and the cells were not going to be sufficient mm-hmm. to uh, to ever we'd be lucky if we ever sold half a dozen of them yeah. right. and it will be a very expensive instrument to put together. So, so it's, 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 you've got, to, you've got to balance out what's the likely sales going to be and, and what new parts need to be made to, to produce this. Sometimes you can produce an instrument using mostly existing parts at a fairly low cost.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: But
2: if it's like that would have been, every, virtually everything would have been new. It was just mm-hmm. not economical yeah definitely
1: you you mentioned that one f two but that went through a fair amount of prototyping but is there another instrument that was particularly difficult to design or have you have you run into any that maybe you've wanted to produce and this and this you think the sales might have been there, but it just ended up being you know too difficult or too time consuming to go through the development process
2: um, I don't know we' If, if we th- if we think there's demand we'll keep at it till till we get it till we get it going gotcha
0: do you think that i know that you guys have like a b flat and a c off a of cloud i think you might even have a quinticlave i think that you guys make yes we also have. yeah so with those and then also with the the e flat over the shoulder saxhorn which we'll get into in a minute here um knowing that those all exist have you ever thought about expanding the families higher and maybe Creating either keyed bugles or um, higher family members of the over-the-shoulder family.
2: We have, uh, yeah, I have, I have thought about, have thought about doing the whole range of the um, uh, American Civil War band instruments. Mm-hmm. We really just got to see sufficient demand to to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, I guess, I guess if we had sort of orders in from from uh, for enough of them to start with, then we go ahead and make it. But at the moment, we haven't. Got gotcha, you. Got gotcha. um, And at the moment, there doesn't seem to be a demand. I'd like to um, uh, try and promote the over-the-shoulder sax or more. Mm-hmm. And actually, I'd like to come and I think there's some gathering of um, uh, Civil War bands at Gettysburg each November. I think if I'm. Yes, yeah, so they. Understand-
0: Yep, so each November they do uh, the Gettysburg Remembrance Day Parade, which is in commemoration of when Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address uh, following the Battle of Gettysburg. And it's a long parade that involves a lot of reenactors, but a lot of bands show up to that as well. And after the parade, a lot of times the bands go up onto... uh, one of the, the locations in the battle and kind of give their own concert um, there. But there's also in October, there's an event uh, being held. Uh, I this think Stone Stone's River yeah, uh, in Tennessee, I believe. Gotcha, gotcha. And that, that's what they're calling the Battle of the Bands. And they're going to have uh, close to 60 Civil War uh, band people they're playing in a concert where they're in two different bands kind of playing side by side with and at each other
2: <laughs> yeah, so, yeah but I, I obviously like to bring, bring along one of our saxons or, or sax yeah saxhorns yeah. to to um to one of those events and let people try and get the feedback and, and see what the interest is and making more things yeah definitely
0: yeah. Stephen and i saw the horn at uh at itech in 2019 and we got to play it a little bit and we saw that there was a lot of excitement. You know, I thought a lot of people were playing it, you know, at the yeah. event. Now, granted, not a lot of them are going to be involved in Civil War era music. So it's kind of more of just a, oh, look what I get to play once kind of thing. So, yeah, it's yeah. definitely it, it definitely has to be uh, trying to get it in front of the right people, which kind of made me wondering this morning, um, is there any type of American <laughs> Civil War interest uh, over by you, by any chance?
2: What well, here?
0: Yeah, in over across the pond. Is there any interest in the American Civil War?
2: Most people, will be, even is, they're not familiar with it at all. It's not. It's not. It's something which they've never seen. Yeah. In fact, when I when I've I've shown off the uh, the OTS over in, in Europe, it's just it just gets amazement from everyone. They've never seen anything like
0: no, it. Well. Yeah. Yeah, so that's interesting. So I know that there are, you know, across the world even outside of the United States there are American Civil War reenactments outside of the country, yes. uh, which, you know, is is kind of strange, but but they exist. Um but yeah, so as strange as that is by itself, I guess the existence of those types of brass bands in other parts of the world would be even stranger. So it seems like yeah, probably over the shoulder horns, the market is really only in the United States for
3: now. I think
2: it's. <laughs> I think it mainly be in the United States, mm-hmm. but the um, the um, Wessex OTS. Um, if I say a little bit more about about it as well, because you've yeah. seen my picture uh, of me playing it in Salisbury Cathedral, mm-hmm. we have uh, actually made it so it can also be used in the upright position as well as over the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And it's made so it will play um, in A equals 4, 440 as well as 452. So it can play with a modern group as well as a, well as a, a period civil war. So we've got okay. that adaptability with it. And Was- in the upright concert position um, setup, up, it works very well um, using an orchestra as a substitute for an offer glide. So the sound... Is amazingly close to an offer and obviously I know that because we've got offer in our age as well. Right, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it's it's so anyone that wants offer like sound without having to spend the next six months learning to play offer with all the complicated fingerings, oh. um, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a good alternative to get. For me, that's another market.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering why you decided to start with the biggest over-the-shoulder instrument if you were going to try and get into the, uh, you know, OTS family of horns.
2: I guess because, because um, the company is based on tubers, so we wanted to, to start with the, the bass.
1: Makes the perfect bass, sense, uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> and one became available as well to, to use as a bassist. Hmm. Um, now, you probably want to know a bit about what's the one that was used as a basis. Yeah. Do you have any information it, on it? <coughs> it was a, I'll probably pronounce this, it's wrong. It's a row and leave it made in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from 1860s, I believe. Very cool. And um, it was in amazingly good condition. Hmm. Um, probably because it was unusually for American Civil War instrument it was pitched in, in in modern picture 440. So you couldn't, couldn't play with a period band. Hmm. So that, that was, and apparently it just, it was just found in a barn somewhere.
0: Huh. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> was, was that one that you had access to over by you or was that in somebody's collection uh, in the U S?
2: That was in, that was in the collection of a chap called Larry Jones. Okay. Um, and yeah, um, he kindly let me borrow it, and it went to it went to the factory, and it was all measured up, and and then we started modifying it to make all the changes we wanted to make. One gotcha. of the biggest changes was making the bell removable because those things are so long oh, in yeah. one piece, yeah. but um, it could be difficult to even get them in some cars. Yeah, I so wow. so we had it with a French horn style removable bell, so it can. The body and the bell go side by side, and you've got a more manageable container to, to transport it rather than the coffin. Yeah. So,
0: so is it a? It's a. It's a, a bolt bell.
2: It's a screw bell, like a French horn.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. got you. Cool. cool. So it's,
1: it's it's neat that you had an instrument to kind of model it off of. And um, other than um, just kind of like the practical changes, like you mentioned with the removable bell, what other kind of things did you tweak? Um, Maybe we can call them quality of life uh, improvements on the horn to make it a little
2: bit more user friendly. Um, We made a a new slide for the third valve. I think it was the third valve, so so it could use normal modern fingering, so it wouldn't use some. You could play it without exotic fingering that people would not be familiar with. So, so some of the slide lengths were changed. We also made it so that a modern more modern mouthpiece would fit in it as well so it's 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 actually like the receivers like the sound the size of a modern euphonium gotcha okay
0: very cool uh, so I'm assuming it was a little bit smaller before that
2: it was a bit it was a bit smaller
0: yeah yeah very cool how how would you say uh it compares to the original. Were you ever able to get your horn next to the original that you were modeling off of or did you not have oh, access yes. to that anymore? I
2: yeah. had them, them side by side. Yeah. And it, well, it played better than the original one because obviously mm-hmm. these old ones uh, always got leaks and, yeah, and <laughs> things that developed over the years. The valves do not fit as tight as a, a new one.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So generally a new one is going to play better than the period one but yeah. still keeping the sound. I'd like to think it's more the sound that the period one would have been when it was new. <laughs>
1: This might this might be a dumb question, but I've seen some over the shoulder horns. Uh, well, I've seen them with both types of piston valves and rotor valves, and I don't remember after trying at, at iTech. are over the shoulder is it a uh, rotor
2: valve horn? It's, it's rotary valve with the valves configured exactly the same as the original one. Okay. And one, and we kept string linkage as well to keep it period like. Um, but one quality of life improvements again was to um, make the spacing of the levers a bit closer together because it was a bit of a reach to mm-hmm. to reach all the valves your hand was like sprayed out so yeah, yeah. so it was, so we just made a bit of modification there to make it a bit better to have to, 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 to you know to hold and play
0: and i also yeah. noticed that your your over the shoulder was four valves was the original a four valve instrument also
2: Yes, that was a it was a fourth four valve.
0: And does the fourth valve function as a normal fourth valve does, like a, a flat one and three combination?
2: Exactly. Yes. Very cool. Neat. That's awesome. So it sounds like
1: you really tried to stick to, uh, you know, the 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 model that you were um, not copying but basing off of, uh, and then from the improvements that you made were just simply practical ones. You know, that made the horn yeah. easier to play.
2: Yeah. The other, the other thing that's different from the original, I think the original one was in. Um, I'm trying to think what it is. It's in, it's in a metal. I'm trying to think what the metal is now. I think, I think, I think, I it think made, it's made of actually nickel silver, and mm-hmm. we, we decided to make it a brass and not a nickel silver. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. The What's silver the difference? So there? hard and so difficult to work with.
0: Uh, silver instruments are difficult to to work with. You said,
2: "Yeah, if, if, if not not silver, but nickel silver. Nickel mm-hmm. silver.
0: Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yes. So, so how many different types of uh, finishes or or materials can the horn uh, be purchased in through Wessex?
2: Well, we we generally make it um, silver plated or lacquered, but we can also supply it just with. Unlacquered raw brass, so we can just tarnish and look look periods. So mm-hmm. if you're using the period badge you might want to get the the, the unlacquered, and then all you'd have to do is leave it by an open fire for <laughs> a couple of months, and it would yeah. look like it was a hundred years old.
3: Yeah, there you go.
2: <laughs> and oh, um, uh, or you could you could have it nickel nickel silver plated as well, but. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't like the silver plates. I sense the dead in the sound.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's interesting that uh, we were saying earlier how you wanted people to have access to all the oddity instruments like off of and all the, the strange tubas and stuff. So your your service of providing those instruments, you know, was important. And I like how that carried over to this instrument as well. Not only with your creation of the instrument, but then also, like we said, all the quality of life improvements and stuff. It seems like mm. you're you're really going out of your way in a sense to to make this an instrument that people can very easily uh you know get a hold of and also be able to play relatively easily.
2: That's that's the, that's the idea. Yes. Yeah.
0: I think just
1: the simple act of producing the instruments is kind of encouraging um the, these types yeah. of ensembles because um they're they're a good way to get into uh like what chris was saying kind of the oddity instruments or the instruments that have fallen a little bit out of favor um but still are new enough that you can come across like offglide parts in an orchestra or something um because i mean if you're looking to buy an authentic in quotes offglide you know that was made you know, a long time ago, that, that can be a sizable investment and that's not going to be accessible to everybody. So just the simple fact of producing these instruments, improving them a little bit to make them a little more user-friendly, I think is is a great way to encourage these ensembles. And it's it's great that you guys are actively doing that because it 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 really fills a void that, you know, nobody other than Wessex has has attempted to fill.
2: And we and we you know we like to keep a dialogue up with the people playing them and, and try to make improvements whatever we can to ever possible if there's a practical suggestion to make them better still we will mm-hmm. right and yes. but it's not a new instrument is made and it stays like that necessarily forever if we realize that something can be done to make it better still we will make it better still mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's like a, a process of continual development
0: yeah yeah i prior to this interview I called uh, Mark Elrod who I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mark Elrod but he's kind of the
2: I've, I I visited I visited Mark I've been to his house I've uh, seen this wonderful
0: Yeah so you you've seen the cave then yeah so <laughs> yeah. so uh so I, I talked to him before this interview just to ask kind of uh what he knew about the the history of reproductions in terms of tubas and stuff or over the shoulder instruments and you know, there, there's a number of uh, very good uh, handmade, you know, private uh, instrument makers kind of thing. But I asked Mark specifically if he knew of any other company that ever tried to uh, reproduce these horns on any type of large scale like what you're doing. And he said no. So it, it's really cool that you guys are, are taking that step because we, we talked about it in another interview, Stephen. I forget who it was with, but how... Um, a lot of these, you know, we can use over the shoulder horns as the example, but a lot of these over the shoulder horns are uh, becoming not playable anymore, or are going into instrument collectors' collections where they're not being played anymore. So the the number of these instruments that are available to these bands to play is going down and down and down. So at oh yeah, they'd be
2: going to circulation. Someone buys it for collection. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so um you know, there are still period horns out there and some come on the market every once in a while for sale to be played. But at some point that, you know, it, it could be a long time from now. It could be relatively soon, but there's going to be at some point where there aren't any more period instruments. You know, like we're not going to be able to... Uh, oh, did I freeze?
1: No, not on my end. No, you're fine. Oh, okay. It, it looked uh, like you're uh, froze.
0: Uh, Yeah, how... Uh,
2: I'd like to come to one of your gatherings and meet the people and, and speak to them and and I would be interested in making more of the range if if there is interest. Yeah. We 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 would, we would need a sample of a good instrument to actually use as a basis. Mm-hmm. But so but say probably the, the obvious next one would be euphonium. The or I'm not sure if you call it a euphonium in the in the civil war band or.
0: Yeah. So the the main. Uh, yeah, the main over the shoulder in that voice range was the baritone, and then yes. also, but then they also made the tenor horn, which was in the same octave. You know, it was another nine foot instrument, but it was kind of like a over the shoulder trombone almost. So you so had
2: well it was the same pitch but smaller bore.
0: Correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you had tenor horn, and then baritone, and then you had B flat bass, and the bore got wider, which each of them, and the B flat bass. Yeah was not super common, not a lot of those were made, but the B flat bass I guess you could say was closest to the euphonium just cuz the bore was the widest, but the B flat bass functioned as playing the E flat part just up an octave. So it was kind of a a boring <laughs> a boring part yes. to play, but the yeah, the uh <laughs> the uh, the, uh, the lively instrument in that voicing was the the baritone. Yeah. But mm-hmm. and kind of yeah. along the lines, oh sorry, go ahead, Stephen.
1: No, I was just going to say that Um, you know, kind of a goal of of this show is to um, kind of dive into the history of 19th century brass band music in America, because it's a, we've said it before, it's an interesting, you know, snippet of time, you know, from, you know, the 1840s, 50s till like uh, 1900 or so. And I think something that Chris and I both feel strongly about is that just as colleges in the US have you know, Baroque ensembles or Renaissance ensembles to study period music, there's really no reason that um, colleges shouldn't have, you know, a 19th century American brass band. And that could be, uh, you know, if there's interest there and if those ensembles and stuff start to start up and a university wants to Mm -hmm. buy a set, it seems like, you know, if if they would Mm -hmm. approach you guys and have enough interest um, that this could be something where, where these reproduction your reproductions kind of expand and then represent the whole family and maybe we can get some of these horns into more people's hands which i think would be great
2: well yeah well it's not only we're making them available when they're not available otherwise but we make making them available at, you know the price that people can afford to buy as for what's probably not they're going to be their principal instruments it's not going to be the thing they're going to be wearing yeah, every yeah. day but mm-hmm. it's like their secondary instruments, they, and they don't want to invest a ten thousand dollars in it or whatever they they can we're making it affordable as well
0: yeah. yeah yeah well like uh like steven was just saying like i was saying before i think you know we hope that this ensemble becomes an educational ensemble at the college level at some point and like grows and more of these bands start to exist and like i was saying as the period horns become less and less available because uh you know they're Getting put out of commission for various reasons. Uh, these schools and these bands are going to need instruments, you know. So reproductions are, are definitely, you know, what people are going to need. Hopefully, if this if this type of ensemble uh, takes off, you know.
2: Which it would be a great shame if that was lost because that's that's part of the part of the national culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, and
2: uh... so, yeah, I think I think those, those American brass bands, as much as the American culture, the. British Welsh bands in the British culture, yeah. or, been... or, in, or in Germany they got their own wind bands and such like. It's but these are all distinctive sounds which need to be preserved.
0: Yeah, definitely, totally agree. Right. And and speaking of German bands, I saw that you guys had some oval euphoniums and stuff and Kaiser horns. That you guys?
3: Yeah, made, so. we, we do that
2: well.
0: And
1: I yeah. I played one of those at at Itech and I really enjoyed playing on it. It was fun. One of the one of the oval. Uh, Euphoniums, or I'm I'm not sure what the term you guys have for him is, but it was the oval shaped, you know, baritone yes. euphonium instrument. I thought it was a blast.
2: <laughs> so. And another one we are another one we are working on is a, is a French saxophone. Um, their, their production has entirely stopped in France hmm. itself. We were actually approached by. One of the um, bands in France. Do, can we can we start making French saxhorns, traditional French saxhorns? So that's something else we'd like to add to our range.
0: Oh, there you go. That'd yeah. awesome. That
2: would be awesome. That's over at the factory being measured up at the moment.
0: That's cool. So, yeah. so that's a, a little sneak peek of of what's to come. What voicing are you guys? Do you guys have in mind that, for that? That
2: will uh, be a in B flats like euphonium pitch.
0: Gotcha. Very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Can't can't wait to try that one. That would be cool. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> so you'll probably see that at one of the conferences
4: someday.
0: Great.
1: So yeah, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to find out more about Wessex as a company and your products and all that good stuff?
2: Well, the, the first place to to look to hear about Wessex is, is go to our website, Wessex-Tubers. Com. go and have a good look on there and you can see the full range with all our exotic instruments as well as the mainstream ones and visit, visit our showroom in Chicago by appointment um, you can call the number 616-843-6888 and um, make an appointment and go and visit and if you actually buy one there at the showroom or um, order one while you're there you'll get a 10% discount as well. So, because we, we offer that to, you know, to help with your travel expenses to get to Chicago.
3: <laughs>
0: Thank you. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Good to know. Uh, are you guys on social media as well, by any chance?
2: Well, we're, we're on Facebook and look at the, the wedding Tubers page on, on Facebook. And we, we regularly put announcements on there, any events we're exhibiting at. And um, links to blogs as well. We usually at least once a month, put out a new blog on the website as well. Very cool. Great.
1: Yeah. We'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes uh, for, for the listeners. They can hop onto our website. Um, and if they, if they forget what you said, your website was, we'll have it linked for them. And uh, that way every, everything's right. in one place and people can go nuts and
0: go visit all the links. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan Hodgich for coming onto the early American brass band podcast. We, Really appreciate your time and uh, your expertise and everything you're doing for brass instruments and the early American brass band movement. So thank you so much.
2: Well, nice to speak to you. And thanks for your interest and, and invite me on.
0: Of course, of course. Thank you again to Jonathan Hodgetts from Wessex Tubas for speaking with us for episode number 16 of the early American brass band podcast. It was great being able to talk to a business owner and an instrument maker for the first time on the show. And it was really cool hearing how that perspective is kind of informing his uh, interest and involvement with music preservation and all that kind of stuff. It, It was awesome.
1: Obviously, the the listeners who are listening to the show couldn't see him, but we could. And he was very enthusiastic the whole time. And you could tell he just really enjoys talking about and developing these instruments. So it was great to be able to speak with him. Uh, Be sure to visit our show notes on our website. It's eabbpodcast.com. There will be show notes up for this episode, uh, and they'll have links to... Every website and and video that he mentioned at the end of the episode. Uh, That way, if you're interested in any of the instruments they produce or getting in contact with them to maybe start a conversation about one they don't produce that you would like to see them uh, prototype, uh, you can contact them uh, there. You can find all the links with their contact info.
0: This episode's featured album is The Origin of the Species by The Wallace Collection. The Wallace Collection is a European brass group that released this album in 1996, which is subtitled Virtuoso Victorian Brass Music. Uh, They're from Wales, and uh, it is a brass group led by John Wallace. They're very passionate about promoting the diverse world of brass music through performance and partnership, education and innovation. Uh, The origin of the species includes a wide variety of brass music, that's a little bit different from early American brass music, but played on period instruments and it all sounds fantastic. So make sure you go over to our show notes for this episode on eabbpodcast.com, and make sure you check out our little write-up about the Wallace Collections album on there. The Wallace Collections album is also uh, included on our discography page, which is located under the resource tab on our website, eabbpodcast.com, as well as a few other interesting resources that you can check out there so please visit us there please visit us on our social media accounts and anything else Stephen.
1: i think that wraps it up thanks for listening we'll talk to you uh next wednesday yeah probably next wednesday sounds good
0: take care thank you